the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Jesse Gastan. He's the host of Way of Grace, a pastor and a community leader. He's a teacher and an inspiration. He's Lifeline's own Jesse Gastan. And I want to welcome you to another Monday edition of Lifeline as well. I'd love to say that we are embarking upon and engaging in the bathing of our bodies in massive doses of healthy vitamin D, but I cannot, cannot say that. We'll say welcome. We'll let you know that the number to reach me on this Monday edition of Lifeline is one 367 5329 and I'm wide open to conversation with you for the next Hour and 55 minutes. Again, I want to welcome you to um, a privilege, an opportunity, constitutional right that we all have, and that is to engage in a forum by which we can talk about matters that are important to us so long as we try to be responsible with those topics and matters that would, um, what, uh, respect our laws, respect our citizenry, respect our... um, our our responsibility as human beings and uh, and most of all respect who we are in Christ if in fact we are children of the living god uh, and we are in a context where we can talk to literally tens of thousands of people as we do every day uh with uh Salem Broadcasting and KFAX Radio being such a massive uh signal voice uh if you will, microphone to the world here in Northern California and abroad, what we want to do is make sure whoever's ear uh, ear hustling in on our conversation will either be provoked in the right way, evoked in the right way, um, and moved, if you will, in the right way to either enter into our conversation and uh, discussion or take away from it something that can be beneficial to their life. So, yeah, let's do some potpourri. Let's do some gumbo. Let's uh, add some things to the hopper in uh, terms of building a legacy for this Monday, November 19th, 2018, if you will, 5.07 p.m. Again, um, I'd love to be able to say a great sunny day, uh, although, let's see, as a rule, we might have some ambivalent weather this time of year as we move towards Christmas. It certainly is the rule, but there are exceptions that we would have uh, cooler days heading into December. I think you would agree with that. Our weather cools down significantly. It can even get downright cold um, somewhere between uh, 20s and 30s overnight and 40s in the morning uh, and, and further north, even colder than that. There is a bit of snow starting to precipitate in the mountains. But as a rule, we will also have 
around this August month of November going into December, some fabulous weather. I don't know if you remember, but I've I've recalled some Christmas days being so pristine with a um, a period of sunlight and sunshine and clear skies, if you will, uh, to where one would say, boy, these are some great Christmas days. A little, you know, a little tinge of cool in the air, but the weather was, is generally beautiful. And, uh, and again, we love it being Californians uh, and known for our sunny weather, but that is not the case right now. I don't know about you. And I'd love to hear from you about it. Uh, but over the last week or two, it's been quite eerie having to observe massive groups of people in public wearing masks. You know, I'll watch TV or I'll, I'll peruse the Internet and, and do international news. And I am used to people wearing masks in China. Uh, because uh, the uh, the pollution rules and laws in China are, are largely neglected for their economic pursuit and uh, understandable, but the people there have to live in that 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 smog every day, and it's not uncommon to see one out of ten people, if not more, in China in Hong Kong uh, wearing masks. And every now and then I might see a person wearing a mask here in the Bay Area, particularly and frequently it would be an Asian person. You kind of wonder what that's about. Probably allergies. But ladies and gentlemen, almost everywhere you go now, people are wearing masks. And I was talking to a group of my uh, inner circle believing family members, people who frequent with me on uh, matters of prayer and uh, and, uh, the you know, the duties of the local church, that's the privilege you got to have when you are in ministry. You got to have a local team who's uh, who are what we call true yoke fellows, people who are really wanting to actually do the work of the Lord. They are your inner circle, Pastor. And uh, and, and you talk about these matters here. You know, uh, Sunday morning, we set up for uh, food, uh, for coffee and some snacks. Uh, it's rather elaborate at Grace, <laughs> to, to be honest with you. We don't mind making sure that no one goes hungry. And so every Sunday morning, well, heck, every time we open the doors, we do that. Coffee, juice, uh, fruits, some vegetables. But certainly Sunday mornings, there are muffins and there are fruits and there are um Donuts and there is coffee and tea and and a few other whatnots. You mix it together and you got you some nice carbs and some slow and fast carbs and uh, you, you're quite ready to do worship by the time Sunday school comes. Well, yesterday, as you know, it was extremely smoggy early in the morning t- until about eleven o'clock, and uh, we all had to be very uh, judicious about whether we would be outside uh, for any long period of time because of the smog, the smog, uh, smoke-filled, smoggy days that we have now become almost accustomed to. Kind of eerie, isn't it? Uh, Should be somewhat worrisome, because who's to say that uh, it's going to absolutely clear up anytime soon that uh, we we can't find ourselves um, experiencing a diminishing and degrading of the quality of our air on a permanent basis. And who's to say that people aren't really, really being becoming ill by the present exposure to the smoke that we are now um, imbibing? 
I think it was someone who said that uh, to be out in the air uh, for any long period of time without a mask on is the equivalent of smoking a couple of packs a cigarette a day. I couldn't imagine that. I just couldn't imagine that. But if that is true and not hyperbole, if that's, uh, you know, a professional estimation, uh, scientifically speaking, then uh, we're in real trouble here in the Bay Area. I do know this. I know a number of people who have uh, experienced symptoms of headaches, sore throats, definitely congestion, uh, uh, small bouts of bronchitis and asthma. Uh, Alarming. It's just alarming. It's something we need to be careful about. And should we return back to a fairly decent weather pattern of consistent sunny days with um, a retrieving of our uh, high quality of air that we we laud everywhere in the world that we go? If we should ever recover those days, you know, we need to we need to count our blessings. We need to really be thankful for the inheritance of good weather here in the California Bay, particularly in the San Francisco Bay Area, because, I mean, it can be a little challenging uh, in in Southern California, except for when you get to San Diego. I remember years ago, I'm sure some of you do too, we'd be driving into L.A. over the uh, grapevine, and as soon as you get over the grapevine into Pasadena, guess what? That smoggy air would appear and settle down on the whole of that valley area, And uh, you knew that uh, you had come from uh, the light into the darkness. And I remember as a little boy, it wouldn't be one day into uh, visiting relatives or friends in in Los Angeles that I would become congested and would have to uh, use an inhaler or if not uh, a ventilator uh, nebulizer to clear out my lungs because I did grow up with asthma as well. And so, you know, these things are alarming. They're, they're, some, they're somewhat concerning, and I, I just want to uh, encourage you to um, be careful yourself. If you do, are marginal with your breathing, if you do have bronchial issues and asthmatic issues and you, you say, well, I'm not feeling it right now, well, you do want to be careful because it will accumulate, cumulatively build up, and then one day you'll just feel lethargic. You will then have small measures of congestion, and the next thing you know, you're in a bout of asthma. And if you know anything about that, as do I, um, you don't really want that. If you can avoid it, please do. So that's our medical update for today. All right, so what am I going to talk about when I come back from the break? Got a couple things on my mind. I don't know if you've ever heard the term deconversion missionary. That's right. Deconversion missionary movement is the idea that there are uh, a number of people moving from the faith into the faith of uh, agnosticism and atheism. People are starting to move. And I talked about this trend a couple of years ago. If you recall, I said it was going to build. It's part of the apostasy of the times in which we live. People are moving away from the faith for a lot of reasons. I'll expand on that. But they are also becoming more aggressive at becoming deconversion missionaries. In other words, they have a strategy and a tactic of reaching people who are in church to let them know that they should no longer believe the propositions of biblical truth relative to a biblical worldview. Can you imagine that? Missionaries out there to tell you to live a post-Christian life. And guess where it's working? It's working in high schools. It's working in colleges. 
It's amazing. High schools and colleges. Why? Well, our brains are a little bit more uh, susceptible and fluid and and we can pivot uh, depending on uh, the authorities over our life and the influences we are exposed to in high school and college. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. I'm going to share an article with that and see, have you ever been exposed to a deconversion missionary? <laughs> All right. Then I've got another topic that I think is fascinating, too, that I want to talk about. But I'd love to hear from you. The number is one 367 I'd be glad to hear on you, hear from you on any topic whatsoever, just to help me pass the time for the next hour and 50 minutes on the Monday edition of Lifeline. You are listening to Jesse Gistan. Glad to be with you. I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. And we are back to time 519 on the Monday edition of Lifeline. As I was saying earlier that um, uh, there has been a movement that has begun to occur in the Bay Area. And uh, that is called not the Bay Area, but the nation, if you will. I'm not sure if this is true around the world, but for a number of reasons, I can see why it is occurring in our nation. It's called, again, a deconversion movement. Uh, sort of missionary effort. This is written by one Michael Kruger. Now, Michael Kruger happens to be a prof and a uh, uh, editor for the uh, Gospel Coalition, uh, one of those websites that actually, you know, carries a lot of different news items. In fact, I pull uh, uh, stories and uh, ideas from them frequently in preparation for our conversations on uh, Mondays. But Michael Kruger, uh, having met him uh, and heard his um his speeches and his uh, his presentations on scripture, which are excellent, he's written some really really good books on um, on some of the historical factors for verifying the validity and the uh, essentiality of the New Testament manuscripts. Because there's a major battle going on against the canon of scripture for those who are in uh, the know about the warfare that we're having in the church with men uh, and women. Uh, professing to be Christians, but denying the authority of Scripture, the veracity of Scripture, the uh, verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. That is a big battle going on today where um, uh, folks are just denying the Word of God. Well, that's one of the planks that must go in order for these deconversion missionaries to turn men and women away from the Bible. It kind of goes like this. I'm going to read a bit of it to you, and then I'll just give you some of the points that he's talking about. Michael says, when it comes to reaching the lost, one of the most tried and true methods is the personal conversion story. Whether done privately or publicly, it's compelling to hear about how someone came to believe in the truth of the gospel and the Bible. Such testimonies can personalize and soften the message so it is more easily understood and received. <clears throat> That's true. When I'm, when I'm often helping uh, and teaching classes on evangelism, what I do is I share with people that there is a need to be able to distinguish between witnessing the, uh, the, the, the fact that God has saved you and, and how that came about. That's a witness declaring, giving a testimony of the grace of God, how it impacted you when you were confronted with the claims of Christ and the gospel. But evangelizing is not witnessing. Evangelizing is when you declare and tell the story about the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that doesn't have a personal component to it. Uh, The personal component is the witness uh, that bears upon the truth of the gospel when it came into your life. However, what Michael says is this. Uh, 
When it comes to reaching the found, he's talking about religious folks. There's an equally effective method. And this is a method to which the evangelical church has paid little attention. That's why I'm bringing it to you now. And I want to hear from you on it. It's what we might call the deconversion story. Now, deconversion stories are designed not to reach non-Christians, but to reach Christians. And their purpose is to convince them that they're outdated and naive beliefs are no longer worthy of their assent. A person simply shares his testimony of how he once thought like you did, but have now seen the light. Have you heard that before? Of course, there have always been deconversion stories throughout church history. If one would only take the time to dig them up and listen to them. Christianity has never had a shortage of people who were once in the fold and then left. In recent years, however, these deconversion stories seem to have taken on a higher profile. Part of this is due, no doubt, to the technology that makes them more available, whether through podcasts, blogs, and other forms of media. But it's also due to the fact that many of those who deconvert have realized a newfound calling to share their testimony with as many people as possible. Rather than just quietly leaving their old beliefs and moving on to new ones, something that would have been more common in past generations, a new guard seems to have made it, <clears throat> made it their life's ambition to evangelize the found. Now, here's how it goes. Indeed, many of these deconversion stories are told with the kind of conviction, passion, and evangelical zeal that would make a modern televangelist blush. In their minds, they're missionaries to the lost in every sense of the word. They just have to help these Christians realize they are mistaken and lead them to the truth. Modern examples of those in the deconversion business are well-known uh, persons like Bart Ehrman and Rob Bell and Peter er er Earns and as well uh, as Jen Hatmaker. And I won't talk about that individual because that's just a person online doing exactly what Michael Kruger is saying. He's you know, telling people how she was part of a big mega church and came to the light after some calamities and after some troubles and after church folk let her down. Uh, but one of the things that Michael does is kind of gives you some of the outlining steps, and I'm going to share them uh, before we go to the phone line. Step number one, uh, they would uh, recount all of the negatives of the fundamentalist past. In other words, when they go to talk about their past, they love to talk about the extreme expressions and doctrines and, and teachings of a church that would be uh, probably lopsided in their view of Scripture in terms of uh, legalism and works religion and, and, and strenuous uh, adherence to maybe man-made laws. In other words, they got a pet peeve with obedience to the word of God. And they'll pull out um, anecdotal stories that would suggest to you and I that uh, you're being abused. Secondly, they'll position yourself as themselves as the offended party who bravely fought the establishment. Now they are uh, victims of the of the local church establishment, and now they want to fight against it in order to save themselves and save you. So they are coming off as victims. Thirdly, they portray their opponents as overly dogmatic while they were just seekers. Fourthly, they insist on their new theology as being driven by the Bible and therefore to not be rejected. 
You've heard that before. No, I'm still I'm still coming from the Bible. I'm still teaching the Bible. I just don't I don't believe it uh, the way we normally do in the Christian church. And 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 just to share with you an abridgment to what Michael is saying. The deconversion missionary will talk about how they see the light now, and the Bible is no longer the Word of God in total. I mean, if it's the Word of God at all. They see the light now, and Christ is not the only way to God. They see the light now, and heterosexual relationship is not the way, the only way to do marriage. They see the light now, and grace frees us from all authority. You want, to, you want to know what that hissing sound is? It's the snake teaching you lies. And not only are these people no longer holding to what they never really had, because we can demonstrate biblically that if you're truly saved, you can never, ever be unsaved. It's just not possible. All whom the Father giveth me shall come to me, and he that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they know me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. That doesn't happen when God saves you. Now, if you saved yourself, if you bought into a system of religion, and you walked the aisle, and you prayed the sinner's prayer, and you began to work out your salvation in fear and troubling, apart from God working in you, the willing to do of his good pleasure, then yeah, you can, you can be lost. And in fact, you will be lost. So a lot of people have the revolving door of church experience because they never, ever were truly saved. As John said, they went out from us because they were not of us. For had they been of us, they no doubt would have never, ever departed. There's a double boat lock on the door of saved folks. It's a beautiful truth, Jeremiah chapter 39, verse 32, verse 39 and 40. Read it for yourself. In any event, I'm going to take a break. Uh, and when I come back, I'm going to take your phone calls. The lines are full and we're going to see what people are talking about. And we're going to just kind of get at this today. Have you ever met someone who is a deconversion missionary trying to move you away from the hope of the gospel to perish with them in that which the Bible calls apostasy? I'd love for you to call, but the lines are full right now. I wish I had eight more lines, but I'm going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to make some gumbo. And now back to Lifeline. And we are back to time 532. Lines are full. Let me start at the top of the list. Let's go to line number four and talk with Melody. Melody, are you with us? Yes, I am. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Pastor? Great. What's your question, observation, comment, or what have you? Okay. So, You've been teaching us the last couple of Sundays that about Adam was not in the transgression. And so I was reading in Isaiah 14th chapter mm-hmm. um, about Lucifer, how he was fell out of, I guess he fell out of heaven. So my question is, so uh, you got to help me with um, formulating the question, but like where did sin originate from? Did it originate from Satan? Okay, good question. The two the two don't correlate though, but they don't. I, oh, yeah, okay. But but it, in a sense, they're not synonymous. So when I say when when Paul, not me, when Paul says in first first Timothy two fourteen that the right. woman the woman being deceived was in the transgression and not right. the man. 
Paul was making it very clear that Adam was not there at the time that Eve was engaging in a proposition with the devil by which she was deceived. And then she gave the fruit that she had eaten already to him so that he ate with her. What Paul made a very clear distinction was, is that uh, Adam was not standing there engaging in ear hustling while his wife was being duped by some false prophet, which, as you know, I've been deconstructing that myth because it's it's been taught everywhere in the Bay Area for years and, and across the across the nation. We're, our, our preachers are just not being careful about uh, exegeting that text in Genesis chapter 3 carefully. But getting to the more fundamental question about where does sin come from? Sin, mm-hmm. sin first comes from God, and this needs to be understood as well. You'll hear people talk about that God is not the author of sin. Have you heard that before? I've heard it, but I don't believe it. Right. Well, um, that's what people will say. They will say God is not the author of sin because they want to defend God. Uh, Mm -hmm. God's not the author of confusion, but confusion and sin are not synonyms. Um, When we talk about sin, you have to define sin. Now, sin is transgression of God's law. That's what sin is. That's first John three, four, right? Sin is transgression of the law. And then Paul made it very clear in Romans chapter five, where there is no law. Transgression cannot occur. In other words, if I don't put a stop sign up for you to stop your car at that yellow strip and then look both ways before you go again, if you drove through that section without that stop sign there, you haven't transgressed anything because there's no law there. Right. Right. So right. now one would have to say, if I'm committing a transgression by crossing a line, the only way I can be crossing that line is that some author, some authority, some power created that line by which sin could actually occur. And only God is the lawgiver. That's the Bible. The Bible's clear. God is the judge. He's the lawgiver. So sin comes by way of God having established law. Without law, there's no sin. And that would be the same way in your house or mine with our kids. Uh, When we Mm -hmm. tell our kids what to do and what not to do, we establish boundaries. They break those boundaries. They have what? They have sinned. Right. right. Oh. Now, now, now there's going to be a slight difference uh, when we talk about the motive of the heart relative to that act of transgression. So like what people don't often get, particularly people who are not Christians at all and don't accept a biblical worldview, is that why would God <clears throat> create laws that he knew that we were going to break? They would want to actually make him culpable of um, transgressing or being a sinner himself simply because he established the law by which sin could have its life. But you and I know that as a fundamental premise that God is good, that God is holy, righteous, and just, and his motives are going to always be right, even when he puts boundaries in our lives that he knows that we're going to violate. It doesn't make him a transgressor that he creates the law by which transgression is realized. So does that make a little sense? Kind of confusing. but Okay, so let me let me go back to what you were trying to deal with in Isaiah 14. So again, when I say, when I say, uh, where does sin come from? Sin comes from violating God's law. God's law, right. Right. So Mm -hmm. you, no one can be a sinner and do any sin without transgressing something. Okay. Right. So there has to be a law. 
and 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 laws come from lawgivers and when when you violate that law now you have transgressed now you have sinned you have crossed that line so if god okay, never made so i get it i know what you you saying that because adam and well not adam but eve she broke the law because he told her what not to do and she did it so she was disobedient right and then adam came and when she gave it to adam because the Lord originally told Adam not to do this, right? And I guess He passed it on to her. I don't know if she was there when. Well, that's another conversation because she hadn't come. That's another conversation. Um, so, Melody, that's I'm another listening. that's another conversation, and it's is really <laughs> worth discussing. But it's another conversation. Like I said yesterday, if people don't take narratives and allow narratives to flourish and open up so that you can have reasonable questions about things like, did Eve get her instructions directly from God or did she get them secondarily okay, Adam. through Adam? Right. So we don't right. know. We don't know. OK, here's what we okay. can know that. Adam got them directly because that's what Genesis 2.17 says. He could have given them to Eve in the sense that um, Adam was the uh, representative head and he would have had the right and responsibility to let her know this is what daddy said, right? Right. However, Eve could have had a relationship with God herself because she was without sin as well. She was totally sinless, totally righteous. There was no impedance between her and the God that made her and Adam. So we can we can assume that she heard God's voice talking in the cool of the day, just as it was with Adam. And therefore, they would have both been culpable and responsible for having heard God's law. Even though, as the Bible would have it, uh, we are our brother's keeper. And so Adam would have had to remind her, hey, watch out for that tree. Uh, And so now Eve knows, as well as Adam knows, the one thing in this garden we don't want to mess with is the tree. However, when you talk about Isaiah 14, what you're talking about is another set of laws given to the angels above because Lucifer was one of the shining cherubs, as Isaiah 14 puts it, shining ones, one of the bright illuminaries, one of the major cherubs, as as most men sur- uh, surmise it. He was a chief angel. Now, his falling, his falling was his rebellion against God, as Isaiah 14 puts it. He wants to be like God. He wants to rule over the people of God. He wants to sit on the throne of God. That's covetousness. That's idolatry. That's anarchy. That's rebellion. That's every uh, hostile act of treason that anyone could commit against a kingdom. So now Mm -hmm. he did that somewhere before he actually tempted Eve. We don't know how long it was before he entered into the snake, as you and I learned yesterday, was turning things upside down. That's the pantheism mm-hmm. and animism that goes on today, people believing that animals and and uh, can, can talk and have e- equality with human beings as part of the apostasy today. He, he entered into that snake to talk to Eve, having already heart, a heart of rebellion against God. God knew that God allowed that. God will test his people. He will test you and I. So it was one sinner, the, 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 the serpent, Satan, coming to a saint because until Eve ate the fruit, she was still a saint. She hadn't sinned yet. 
But Mm -hmm. this sinner comes to the saint and then begins to manipulate the saint's thinking and causes the saint now to turn away from the true and the living God and commit the practice of idolatry, which means she actually worshiped the serpent. Uh huh. Right. Right. So we have one sinner who had fallen from heaven, Isaiah 14 and other passages, Ezekiel 28, who comes now to God's only creatures, Adam and Eve. And he doesn't come to Adam. He comes to Eve because right. he knows strategically he can get Eve to have the conversation. This is what you're going to learn this Sunday. Remember, our strength becomes our what? Right. And women like to talk. That's just the way God made you. (laughs) Right. But she didn't have the enmity to recognize this evil serpent until after God gave her that 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 decree in Genesis three around verse 12. There will be enmity between you and that snake from here on out. In other words, God loved her enough to let her know he's not to be trusted, talked to at all. But before that, there was no enmity. So she didn't have a sense of concern or warning about this serpent. It just wasn't in her nature. She didn't have that discernment. So she thought she could talk to him. But he was the most subtle creature that God had ever made. So God's using anthropomorphism. God is using zoomorphisms to help us get the larger narrative that the enemy is so conniving, so wicked, so diabolical that if you and I don't hold on to God's word, he can get you through logic. He can get you through psychology. He can get you through emotionalism. He can even get you through theology. When you and I abandon the clear, explicit teaching of God's word, there's no way that we can overcome Satan. Thank you, Pastor. <laughs> All right. Bless you. Got to let you go. And I got to take All another right. break. Um, when I come back, I'll catch, let's see, James, Deb, and Ken on lines one, two, and three after this break. Hope you guys enjoyed that class. Be careful not to talk to snakes. You rule over them. They don't rule over you. Don't ever let a snake teach you anything. I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. And we are back. The time is 546. We've got two lines open. one 367 I'd love to hear from you. one 367 Two lines are open. Let me go to line number two and talk with Deb in Oakland. Deborah, are you there? Yes, Pastor Jesse. How are you? Um, in pain, but I'm okay. What's going on? What's your thoughts today? Well, some people have asked me what's the difference between God Almighty and, you know, they say a mighty God and then Almighty. What's the difference? No difference. No difference at all. And I'm going to make the assumption in the, uh, in the discussion, I'm going to make the assumption with you that you would be dealing with folks like the Jehovah Witnesses, And then you might also be dealing with other subordinationists who hold to Jesus being a lesser God. And therefore, when they read the terminology in Scripture, Almighty God, they make that terminology exclusively applying to God the Father uh, with the objective of denying Christ either his whole deity or a partial deity 
um, um, a partial deity position. They would make him a lesser God. Uh, Jehovah Witness theology, Arian theology, going way back to the Nicene Creed argument uh, with Athanasius and Arius and and others who had held to a unipersonal God. This is uh, the fact that God is one person and therefore because he's one person, the one true living God, he doesn't have uh, equal partners. And so the son is not equal to God in any sense whatsoever. And therefore, when you find the predicate almighty, that predication is exclusive to God the Father. Um, The problem with that terminology is that uh, the assumption that we can measure God is a fallacy, meaning uh, if we believe that Jesus Christ is also God, and we must draw that conclusion, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The grammar is explicitly clear there. The same was in the beginning with God. That is, the Word was God, or the the the, the God was the Word, really is a construction in the Greek grammar there. It was always being God. Uh, the father and the son had an equal relationship prosopon face to face. That means an equality of relationship uh, as persons. And therefore, all of the qualities of uh, the uh, divine nature would have been uh, attributed to Jesus Christ as it would have been attributed to the father. Though the term almighty God will more frequently and, and one or two times is used in the New Testament. Contextually, we could apply it to the father. You cannot take away from the son the attributes of of divinity in terms of those qualities that constitute godhood and make him a lesser god. I've debated with Jehovah Witnesses on this before. I've asked the fundamental question that never really gets answered, Deb, and that's this. Can God be measured? If an infinite God is in fact infinite, almighty, if he's um, all-knowing, if he's all-powerful, can we measure God? And if the answer is no, you can't measure God, then either Jesus is the true and the living God along with the father and is the express revelation of his image or he's not. All other lesser gods are false gods. And this is why we don't give ground to our Jehovah Witnesses, friends or enemies. If they want to take an enemy position, then we are enemies, adversaries. But if they want to be friendly adversaries, you know, we can work with them because some of them are family members and what have you. But I always put the question now, how can you measure God? Uh, And then they look all crazy and weird. And I say, you guys made a fundamental fallacy at the premise of your argument that Jesus is a lesser God. It's really nothing but Gnosticism of the first century to assert that Jesus can be qualitatively and quantitatively measured. The moment you put limits on him, he does not constitute biblical godhood. So the equality of Christ is seen in Philippians chapter two, five, as you know, Um, though he existed in equality with God. He thought himself of no reputation, but, you know, humbled himself and became like unto a man and a servant, even to the death of the cross. Equality with God was something that Christ knew he had. Uh, He never had to boast about it. He never had to argue for it. And so when you run across people who like to take adjectives out of the Bible and then use them for arguments, just simply ask them the question, Deb. Can, first of all, say, is Jesus God? And they go, yeah, he's God. All right, is the Father God? Yeah, he's he's God too. All right, is the Holy Spirit God? They might argue that the Holy Spirit is not God because they often argue that he's not a person, but we could demonstrate explicitly that he is a person and not just the force. 
Then we go, if Jesus is God, as the Bible explicitly says, Isaiah 9, which you just quoted, you know, he shall be called the mighty God. That's literally a quotation about Jesus, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. You just quoted it. And there could be many other verses we could bring together to demonstrate Christ's almightiness as well. Though largely we would admit that the adjective almighty is attributed to the first person. But when we say that, it simply means that God the Father is the source and that everything that comes into being through the Father comes by the Son, by the agency of the Spirit of God. These three are one. And this is why Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and my Father are one. He didn't mean they were one person. He meant that they were one in power, one in purpose, one in unity, one in their attributes and execution of the work of being God. That's exactly what he meant. And that's why the Jews picked up stones to stone him, because this is what they said. You being a man, make yourself equal to God. Well, they got the implication right there. They got it right. Yeah. Now, that, it was a little stupid, though. Think about this. And I'm going to let you go. Think about this. You just met God. And you, you're mad because God has taken on a human form. He actually did it for you. But, you know, th- this is beside the point. They're mad because he jacked up their theology. And uh, that's, w- that's what gospel preachers do. That's what I do. I jack up people's theology because the Bible is about Jesus. God has made Christ to be the preeminent one that we all look to the Father through the Son. And so here comes Jesus saying, I and the Father are one. They want to pick up stones and stone him. Don't they know, Deb, that he was the one that made the stones? Don't they know that he's the one that made the air by which the stones would have to be carried through the air to hit him? Yes. And don't and don't they know he's the one that upholds them by the word of his power? They're breathing in and breathing out and raising their arms to throw that stone is mighty arrogant. Don't they know that they could fall down dead in just a nanosecond? Should they think they're going to throw a stone at God? Yes. Yeah, the Bible lets us laugh a lot, too. It lets us laugh because it shows us how we can be kind of like silly in our lack of following through the flawed nature of our logic. You know what I mean? Yes, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Listen, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> exactly. That's why God laughs at them in Psalm 2. And he shall laugh at them, have them in great derision. Um Listen, you have a wonderful Thanksgiving, and I'm praying for you. I still need something for Thanksgiving. Yes, indeed. What's that now? I still need Thanksgiving. I haven't gotten a response. Okay, you guys. All right, so I'm going to make sure I push that over this next hour, okay? Okay, thank you. All right, love you. I love you, Jerry. All right, God bless you. God bless you. Let me see here. I think I'm, am I due for a break, or am I good till six? Okay, cool. All right. Let me go out uh, to line number three and talk to my brother down in the Bay. Brother James, how you doing, man? Good yourself, PJ. How you doing, man? I'm great, man. What What's your thoughts, conversation tonight? Well, I got myself in a quandary, and I'm, and, and I'm trying to reconcile what you were speaking of earlier about deconversion. Yes, sir. Uh, yes. Conversion, and I'm and I'm and I'm and I'm weighing that uh, again because I mean I totally get what you were saying. Uh, I know you uh, do. With, with, with the text, with uh, um, I can't find it right now. I'll help you. Just if, quote part of if it. They were with, if they were with us, I mean. If it First was John true, chapter 2, 19, 18 and 19. I quoted that toward the end of our, uh, yeah. before the call. Yeah. Right. Okay. But, uh, but now I got myself caught up because, and I get that, 
But I also, when I look at, uh, okay, First Timothy. Yeah. Uh, over in First Timothy, well, yeah, well, First Timothy say uh, four and one. Yeah. Uh, you know that, that 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 you know that you've taught because there are, there are going to be some that are falling away. So to fall away or to depart, will, to me, would once mean that you were there. That's right. And I'm just going to work through the tension and at the same time reconcile them at the same time. And I'm kind of like, okay, where am I here on the deep end? This is, this, is, this is why the number to call is one 367 Unfortunately, as well, um, you know, you'll hear it at some point. I'm right now. I'm <clears throat> I'm working through expositorily on Sundays the fact that most preachers will say that Adam was standing right there when Eve ate the fruit, and he just let her hang herself, and then he turned around like a silly wuss and started eating too. And one of the things I've been explaining is that it's an absolute fallacy and it's carelessness on the part of many preachers not to do a thorough job of not only gra- grammatical exegesis, grammar exegesis in that text to. Clean Clean up uh, bad translations that have put the term with um, also with her there instead of the the actual grammar that's in the King James with her. But Paul plainly said he was not in the transgression, which means that uh, Adam was not private to the conversation. He couldn't have been or else he would have been sinning, too. Just as if you and I are part of a crime scene, we see it happen and we don't do anything to stop it. We become complicit with it. So Paul lets us know that Adam was not some stupid wuss that just sat there and let his his wife plunged both of them in the hell. Um, it's, just, it, it's just ridiculous. Even so, when we talk about people departing from the faith as 1 Timothy 4, um, what John does in 1 John 2, 18 and 19, and this is why we got to read our whole Bibles around doctrinal issues. This is called the analogy of faith. Uh, some scriptures are going to be used to explain other scriptures. And the fundamental question is, what does it mean to depart from the faith? It means that if one leaves the doctrines of the gospel, as third John puts it, uh, whosoever transgresses and goes beyond Christ does not have the father, neither the son. It simply means that they were pretenders and not possessors, that they came to church, they heard the word, they professed to believe the word, but in fact, the matter, they were not really true believers at all. This is exactly and explicitly what Christ taught in um in, in the in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, when he said Judas Iscariot was a son of perdition. He never was a true believer. He never was truly born again. He was a uh, he was a professor, but not a possessor. And what we mean by that is that one can talk with their lips about believing this doctrine, that doctrine and the other. But if it's not mixed with true saving faith, you're nothing but a hypocrite. And so the Bible will. Um, it will attribute to you a form of belief, but it's not saving faith. It's not the true belief. That's why when Jesus talked about in the scriptures, the parable of the sower, uh, sower and the seed, and you know this, the um, the wayside ground, the stony ground, the shallow ground, and then the good soil. Only one soil was good. The other three were bad. It means that they were playing church. They heard the word, but it was not really mixed with saving faith. So they professed to be believers, but really they didn't possess authentic faith in Christ. So at some point in time, they did what first uh, first Timothy chapter four is doing, prophesying that people would depart from the faith. By the way, that portion of scripture 
is very much in vogue today with our with our present topic. Some will depart from the faith. And if we were to actually exegete first Timothy four more fully, some would depart from the faith is not the faith in the subjective sense of being born again, but the faith in the objective sense of the body of doctrine we profess to believe. So men and women can have a knowledge of having grown up in the church and been catechized the faith by way of body of doctrine, but not actually have saving faith in that objective faith, what we call the credo profession of what Christianity is. So a lot of people have come and gone through the faith, never having true saving faith that would attach itself to the objective truths of uh, the word of God. So I hope that helps a little bit. I'm looking at time here, brother, and I got to let you you go if we want you want to pick this up we can we can pick this up next week i gotta take a break got two lines open one triple eight three six seven five three two nine two lines open one triple eight three six seven five three two nine i'll be right back three-star general michael j flynn head of the pentagon intelligence agency knew all the government's dirty secrets he was one of the most respected generals in the military flynn knew what the intel world had been up to he understood its funding he ordered the first audit of the use of contractors this set off alarm bells the explosive new documentary flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost and covers the facts behind this scandal flynn told the truth he was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.